L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have you been thinking about LASIK but not sure if you're a candidate? Just go to LASIK.com slash quiz and take our free candidacy quiz. In just a few minutes, you'll know if LASIK is likely right for you. And if it is, we'll connect you with experienced LASIK doctors in your area. Start your journey towards 2020 vision. Take our free candidacy quiz at LASIK.com slash quiz. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Welcome to Creature Feature, production of iHeartRadio. I'm your host of Mini Parasites, Katie Golden. I studied psychology and evolutionary biology, and today on the show, it's another listener questions episode. That's the official song that I sing exactly the same way every single time. Uh, Yeah, you guys send me your questions, and I try to answer them either through email or right here on this show. And as you're listening and you're thinking, hey, I've got a question and I want that answered, uh, you can send it to me at creaturefeaturepod at gmail.com. Any kind of evolutionary biology-related question, I may not immediately know the answer, but I certainly can look stuff up. And use my background to give you the best answer that I can. So let's get right into it. So first email in response to one of my episodes on cute animal names, the listener writes in, In addition to pufflings, baby puffins, might I add the Australian marsupials quokkas, whose baby is a bub, woolies, booties, and pooderoos? By the way, these creatures all have something in common. They sacrifice their young as a defensive mechanism. If they are attacked, the muscles surrounding their pouches relax, releasing the babies and letting the parents escape their fate. Are there other animals that give up their children as a way to evade death? Michael. Hi, Michael. So really fascinating information about these marsupials. It is true that quokkas and it seems like the other marsupials you also mentioned abandon their young who will fall out of the pouch as the mother flees and that little baby will make this noise that attracts predators. So this idea is based on observational research where researchers found that these marsupials, their quokkas are these little, they look like 
a cross between a teddy bear and a hamster, and they're about the size of a teddy bear. And they, uh, when they are caught in this human research trap, a humane trap, they were in no real danger. But for the quokka, quite a, an alarming experience, um, these quokkas would drop their babies out of their pouch. So the muscles in their pouch would relax and the baby would kind of flop out and the baby would start squeaking. So the researchers speculate that this may be intentional or at least an involuntary response on the part of the quokka mother, given that the pouch has a number of highly controllable muscles. So in a sense, it may be kind of like how we will pee our pants when we're scared. The quokka might not be consciously doing this, but maybe you know the involuntary reaction to high stress, high fear like that might be releasing this uh, baby out of her pouch. And the baby is called a joey. So this joey kind of flops out. And I, I think what's interesting about this specific situation is it's been observed when the quack is actually in a trap. And I think it may be indicative that the quokka really only does this as a last resort. So not when she's just kind of scared, uh, but when she really feels trapped, and the thinking, or at least even if it's not like an intentional thinking on the part of the quokka, the evolutionary strategy may be that it's better that she gets away to rear more young than they both get eaten. So giving up your own babies to avoid death is not a super common strategy in the animal kingdom, but it is more common than you would think. So uh, in the case of these marsupials, the mother avoiding death likely leads to more successfully reared offspring than saving one individual joey, even though that sounds kind of callous. Evolution doesn't have a moral compass, really. It only cares if you're able to pass on your genes. So quokkas can give birth to around 17 babies over their lifespan. So in the quokka's case, if the mother is eaten, that's going to reduce her chances of, you know, rearing a successful offspring, passing on her genes to zero. Whereas if one joey is lost, that's only one seventeenth of her reproductive potential lost there. So another common strategy is abandoning offspring that you don't have resources for or even eating offspring when you need the extra calories or you have too many offspring uh, sometimes it's the opposite, such as the fantail darter fish males who will actually eat their entire brood if the number of offspring is too small, which seems strange. Why would you eat your brood if you have too few of them? Well, apparently that investment in parental care is only worth it if you have economies of size of baby fish. So like he doesn't have enough baby fish. So it's not worth his time. So he just eats them all and tries again for a larger brood. It's very much a, an economics uh, sort of way of rearing fish offspring. Um, another interesting one is the long-tailed skink, which is a lizard that lives in Taiwan who will try to fend off predators who threaten to eat her eggs. But if there are too many predators or if their intrusions are too frequent for her to properly defend her eggs she would actually rather be the one to eat her own eggs. So she will actually turn around and eat her entire clutch. It's a very, it seems spiteful. Like if I can't have my eggs and you're going to eat my eggs, well, I'll just be the one to eat them. 
But when you think about it, it is a good evolutionary strategy because she's basically at the point where she realizes she's not going to be able to protect her eggs from these predators. So if she just lets the predators eat these eggs, she loses her entire clutch anyways, and she gets nothing out of it. Whereas if she eats the eggs, now she gets a boost in calories, a boost in fuel, which may help her go out, you know, and maybe start a new clutch. So it is, it's a grim calculation, um, one that I guess Thomas Swift, uh, his modest proposal, would cringe at, that satire. Uh, but it is something that is actually employed in nature and, you know, it, it does work even though it kind of defies our human morals. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have you been thinking about LASIK but not sure if you're a candidate? Just go to LASIK.com quiz and take our free candidacy quiz. In just a few minutes, you'll know if LASIK is likely right for you. And if it is, we'll connect you with experienced LASIK doctors in your area. Start your journey towards 2020 vision. Take our free candidacy quiz at LASIK.com quiz. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Now on to a question I got from the ratings. Someone left a question where they would leave a rating and I actually love that. So thank you for that. And here's the question. Are there more eyes or legs in the world from my name is Mud? And that is a deceptively tough question. So to answer it, first let's look at some of the most numerous animals in the world and then Instead of counting all their eyes and legs, which I simply don't have the time to do, uh, we will just kind of look at them in general and see if they typically have more eyes or more legs. So this is all guesswork on my part, sort of ed or educated guesswork. So I don't know. I'm not Wolfram Alpha. I'm not a supercomputer. But this, I'm giving it my best go. So the most populous organisms that would have, I'd say, what we would identify as eyes and legs. I'm discounting things like flagella. Like, let's let's be serious. Those aren't really legs. Uh, so with true eyes and legs, I would say are probably insects. So according to the Smithsonian Institution, uh, there's estimated to be around 10 quintillion insects on Earth right now. So a quintillion is a little bit hard to fathom. It is a billion billions. So there are 10 billion billion insects on Earth, and that's a lot. That is a lot. Uh, there are also microscopic animals, such as tardigrades, who can be found in quantities of like 95,000 individuals per gallon of water in marine or freshwater sediment. I was unable to find like a estimated global population of tardigrades, and it's not as simple as like figuring out how much water there is in the world because the number of tardigrades is going to be different based on like what where that water is, how nutrient rich it is. But suffice it to say, there's probably just an enormously huge amount of tardigrades. So there's going to be a lot of many, many invertebrates like the like insects, arthropods and tardigrades, things like that. Um, so let's look at these guys and see if on average they tend to have more legs or more eyes. Um, first of all, let's talk about what an eye is. Like how do we define an eye? 
If we define an eye as like a single lens, dragonflies have around 28,000 lenses per compound eye. I kind of don't like this, though. I generally think that that would be regarded as a single compound eye, not 28,000 eyes. That's just that's the number of lenses uh, on that compound eye. So if you counted each lens as an eye, I think eyes would win over legs in this game. But personally, I don't think a compound eye should be counted as 28,000 eyes just because it has so many lenses. I think it should be a single eye with a bunch of lenses. So let's move on to uh, spiders. So spiders are arthropods. Uh, they can have around eight eyes, um, which is a lot of eyes, but they also have eight legs. So that kind of cancels out in the eyes to legs contest. So they just, you know, fraction zero, essentially, or one. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm clearly not a math person, but I'm going to say that those things cancel out and spiders, uh, we can't, we can't factor their, them into our eyes and legs calculations as well. So insects typically have more legs than eyes. Uh, insects would all, will often have a pair of compound eyes on either side of their head. They may also have one to three simple eyes called ocelli that detect movement in simple light but don't see in the way that eyes do. But even if we count all of these ocelli, they technically have around five eyes. Um, while insects typically have like six legs. So the legs would still win, especially if you add in little animals like the tardigrades, which I mentioned earlier, who have eight legs and only two simple eye spots. So based on my clearly very, very deep mathematical calculations, uh, my guess is that there are more legs than eyes in the world just because of the sheer volume of insects, tardigrades, these other very small animals, invertebrates. Uh, but we do have some animals who possess a shocking number of eyes, like ocean-dwelling chitons. So chitons are oval-shaped mollusks with a tough, flat-plated shell. Certain types of chiton can have thousands and thousands of simple ocelli eyes. Scallops also have a shocking number of eyes. Scallops are bivalves who can have over 200 bright blue little eyeballs that look like tiny beads, which radiate around their mantle, peeking out from their shells. So I would say that given, if you're to ask me like what, is the maximum number of eyes versus legs something could have. I'd say like I, you can have an animal that has more, well, I guess it depends on how you define legs though, because there are these tiny little tentacle legs on things like starfish. And if you counted each one of those as legs, that'd be a lot of legs. It gets a little funky depending on how you define a leg, how you define an eye. But I think, I, I still think that there's probably way more legs than there are eyes in the world. But if you disagree, if you have some other evidence, uh, write to me at creaturefuturepod at gmail.com. I want to hear your arguments. On to the next listener question. Do you think the T-Rex was a scavenger or a predator or maybe something else altogether? And this is from Corman. 
So the research on T-Rex has flip-flopped a little bit historically. For a while in the 1990s, it was a popular theory that T-Rex was just a scavenger because the idea that such a massive monster would have just been meekly nibbling on dead prey was really surprising and therefore a fun thing to write about. So this idea was mostly the brainchild of paleontologist Jack Horner, who claimed that T-Rex couldn't be a hunter given that its arms were shorter than typical predators and that it was too big and bulky to run quickly and chase after prey. It also had large olfactory bulbs, which are the um, sensory organs of smell. And so his idea was that, well, if they had this really keen sense of smell, wouldn't they use that to find carrion? Uh, also, their teeth could crush bone, and thus perhaps they could extract marrow from carrion. So maybe they were just the garbage disposals of the dinosaur world. But the thing is that many paleontologists back then already started disagreeing with Horner. But it was such a fun and shocking idea that T-Rex didn't actually murder things. It was just a scavenger that many media outlets just kind of ran with that idea. But today, it's more definitive that T-Rex was not just a scavenger, but hunted as well. So first thing, Horner's evidence was not super solid. It's an interesting idea uh, and something that would merit looking into. But after you look into it, it does kind of fall apart a little bit. So his evidence doesn't really rule out hunting at all. There are many carnivores that don't use their forearms to hunt. So like the short T-Rex arms would not prevent T-Rex from hunting. So uh, an example is secretary birds, which are those beautiful long-legged birds with those wonderful crests and those long, luxurious eye eyelashes. They look like runway models, and they will actually stomp on their prey to death, like snails or lizards or snakes and it's they don't need arms in order to pound their prey into oblivion uh, also having teeth that are capable of crushing bone doesn't mean that they exclusively fed on bone and when paleontologists compared t-rex teeth to something like a hyena who is much more um, specialized for carry-on eating it seems like the hyena's teeth are quite a bit different from the T-Rex's teeth and quite a bit more specialized for bone crunching than T-Rex. Um, so the thing that to me is really indicative that T-Rex was a hunter is that there has been fossil evidence showing T-Rex teeth embedded in the flesh of other dinosaurs like the duckbill dinosaur and then further evidence of tissue healing around the tooth, meaning that T-Rex took a bite out of this uh, attempted victim while it was still alive. It got away and then healed around the wound. So the current theory is that T-Rex was like many modern predators who hunted but would happily carry in if they were lucky enough to find it in time. Um, the other part of Jack Horner's, I'm just realizing that Jack Horner is like the name of some kind of, isn't there, isn't there that like fairy tale rhyme that's like little Jack Horner sat in a corner eating a something pie? And anyways, whatever. He was a real guy, apparently. <laughs> so back on track, Jack Horner was saying like T-Rex was too big 
too lumbering and ponderous to be able to run and chase down prey. And in terms of T-Rex's speed, scientists have really waffled back and forth on this. So for a while, they were saying that they could reach pretty decent running speed. More recent computer models estimated their running speed a little bit slower, around 12 miles per hour or 19 kilometers per hour, which a human, like a fast human and a fleet-footed animal, would be able to outrun. Um, but that doesn't mean that T-Rex couldn't hunt or chase things down because there were certainly slower dinosaurs that the T-Rex would have been able to chase down. Um, also, speed isn't only necessary for chasing prey. So this idea that if you're slow, you want to be a carrion eater rather than a prey chaser is a little bit strange because carrion also favors fast animals who can quickly track down and get to the buffet first. So when you have an all-you-can-eat carrion buffet in the wild, you really want to be the first ones to get there because if you're not, it might be all gone by the time you arrive. Uh, and you would have a lot of smaller animals, like a pack of smaller animals that descend on carrion and tear it apart with many mouths may be able to get all the usable meat far more quickly than something like a T-Rex could, like, if it's lumbering over, by the time it gets to the carrion, it might be too late. And remember, like, the floor is not littered with carrion. There are a lot, there are many more, like, living animals out there at a given time than, like, rotting carrion just left out. And so carrion is going to be a more rare encounter than a living animal. So, it's high, very, very highly competitive. Uh, it's why you see like when you when you have scavengers fighting over carrion, it's very it's not easy pickings uh, to be a scavenger. This idea that like, well, if you can't hack it as a hunter, you got to hack it as a scavenger is kind of not not really the case. Like you've got to have skills to be a scavenger. So this idea that T-Rex was too slow to chase down prey, even larger dinosaurs, but somehow fast enough to quickly locate carrion whenever it would happen to fall to the ground is a little bit suspect. So I think that, yeah, when, when this is all put together, I think that T-Rex would have had to rely on every tool at its disposal to get enough meat to be that huge size. So would it turn its nose up at carrion? No, I don't think it would. Uh, just like modern day predators, they often will eat carrion if it's there, if they're lucky enough to find it and lucky enough to get there first, yeah, they will definitely eat it. Um, but I, I feel like it, it can't be that it relied on carrying. It had to have been hunting as well to be able to sustain its mass like that. And it seems quite well built for hunting. And I, I just don't think that Jack Horner's arguments were very convincing in ruling out hunting. And then Coupling that with the fossil evidence showing tooth marks uh, inside, like what we knew was a dinosaur that was alive and then healed over that bite. Uh, yeah, I, I think it was a predator. Uh, so, you know, definitely not something you would want to run into in the wild. But then again, if the most recent computer models are correct, maybe we could outrun T-Rex. I wouldn't want to try it. L-A-S-I-K LASIK.com Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com 
one place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. On to the next listener question, kind of related. Which prehistoric animals would make the best pets? There are far too many candidates for worst pets. There are two in particular I've read about. The bear dog of the family Amphicyanidae, it's sort of a bear-like dog. And then there's Hemicyon, the dog bear. It is a dog-like bear. I'm guessing the bear dog would be a little bit better as a pet. Steven. Hi, Steven. So both those animal families are very interesting. They are early carnivorous mammals. Um, Amphicyonidae is more sort of like just related to a bunch of modern day carnivores, whereas the hemicyons seem to be more related to the bear family. So Amphicyonidae, uh, that family would have, I, I do agree that I think they would have been more, potentially more species in that family that could have become pets, maybe after some unnatural selection on humanity's part, like we did with wolves. Uh, so Amphicyonidae were a family of species of mammalian carnivores. And while some were quite big, like the size of a bear, some were tiny, under 11 pounds or 5 kilograms. So prehistoric chihuahuas. I would rather try my luck with the tiny ones personally, but then again, we did domesticate wolves, which are quite huge and scary. And kudos to those early humans that had the cojones to do that. So the Hemicyon family, uh, or subfamily, I, I think is the most current understanding, seems to be more of an extinct ancestor of modern bears or a cousin, extinct cousin of modern bears. And I honestly, they look pretty fierce. Yes, they do look like a cross between a dog and a bear. And I, I don't think I'd want to tangle with them personally. Uh, uh, and go continuing with the theme that I am a big weenie, uh, the best extinct pet, in my opinion, would be the teeniest, tiniest, cutest, most harmless of extinct mammals, the Baradonides, a shrew-like animal who lived over 40 million years ago in North America and was probably the smallest mammal ever to have lived. It likely weighed only about a gram and could comfortably fit on top of a pencil eraser. For comparison, an adult house mouse weighs around 20 grams. So that's like 20 times the size of this little guy. So the current smallest mammals are the bumblebee bat and the Etruscan shrew, who are tiny and weigh around 2 grams each. So that is still twice as big as the Batodonides. So I really love these teeny tiny guys. Wish they were still around so I could fit like 100 of them in my pocket. On to the next listener question. Just finished watching an episode of the detective show Monk, in which an elephant is used as a murder weapon. The elephant's trainer placed his head under the elephant's foot, and the murderer commanded the elephant to press down via a walkie-talkie taped behind its ears. My question is, given their documented intelligence and compassion for other species, would an elephant understand the outcome of crushing a person's head? If so, does this mean that the elephant in this show is actually an accomplice? instead of a murder weapon. This is from Gretchen. Also, she showed me peanut butter and jelly beans, who are two adorable kitties. Thank you for that. Great question. 
Um, there's not great research on whether elephants understand murder, given how unethical it would be to try to get a bunch of elephants to murder people. Uh, that being said, let's look into elephants and killing and what their thoughts might be about such a thing. So there is a history of elephants being used in executions in ancient Rome, Carthage, South and Southeast Asia, and Africa. Uh, it was a very public, sort of flamboyant way to execute someone, as was the idea. Like, we can control this huge animal and get them to smash you. And so it's supposed to inspire fear and awe of the ruler. Um, so in these cases, the elephants were under the control of a rider, and they could be trained to either kill the convict or to spare the prisoners if there was a last call for mercy. So sometimes the elephants were trained not to kill the victims, but to kind of rough them up, which I suppose at the time was considered more humanitarian. So could the elephants understand the moral implications here? I think first we'd need to know if elephants even understand the concept of death, which is incredibly difficult to study. Researchers have gone through videos of elephants' responses to other dead elephants, and there does seem to be a pattern of behavior that indicates they sense something is off and are upset in some way. They have the body language that indicates distress. But this doesn't necessarily indicate they understand death fully, just that they're distressed that this other elephant is not behaving in the way that they want. So, uh, namely by being dead. So there has been anecdotal evidence of elephants being careful around humans. So one such is a story of, uh, which is kind of hard to verify. I don't know if this is true. It sounds like it could be, but it was a story of an elephant crashing into a couple's home then stopping when it started to hear a baby crying and moving some of the debris off of the baby's crib before leaving. And um, there are also, though, a lot of stories of elephants kind of mowing people down, you know, trampling tourists, trampling people and killing them. And I don't know whether this is like intentional murder or not, if they fully understand. I mean, like, clearly when they do trample people, I think they're distressed and they're, you know, trying to defend their territory there uh, or defend themselves. Um, even if the human poses no threat to them, the elephant doesn't necessarily know that. So researchers, although there is research showing that elephants can distinguish sometimes between humans that are more dangerous and humans that may not harm them, uh, researchers have found that elephants seem to be able to tell the difference between groups of people based on smell and accent and react more defensively to the sounds and smells of groups of people who typically hunt them. So long story short, I don't really know if elephants could grasp the implications of smashing a human's head. My sense is that they may have some understanding of cause and effect um, because they are quite intelligent and they are highly social. Um, and Elephant raised in captivity, like a circus elephant or one of these elephants used in these like uh, ancient executions, I don't know if they'd be properly socialized to kind of learn elephant ethics because there may be some like elephant culture of teaching elephants like gentleness and things. So it's kind of hard to know based on like your fictional monk um, example or the real life historical examples whether that's typical elephant behavior or whether an elephant in the wild would be more hesitant to do something like that. Um, 
because like in captivity, an elephant might just associate that crushing with getting a reward that reinforce that behavior. So, so that elephant's, if an elephant is capable of having a sense of morality, it would be very messed up by being in a circus. Um, so I do think that elephants who have a normal social life in the wild probably do learn some cause and effect of their actions. And they probably have some understanding of that they can cause harm by trampling something. Um, and I think they do understand something is wrong when an individual dies, when it stops moving. They exhibit a lot of distress when it comes to that. So not, I'm not um, convinced that they fully grasp death, but I do think they have some understanding of cause and effect, harm, as well as when something is dead, that's not normal and that there's something off about that and it upsets them. So not quite at the point of upgrading your monk elephant to accomplice, but, uh, you know, maybe somewhat he might have an understanding that this may not quite be right, but I wouldn't arrest that elephant. Free that elephant. Get him a lawyer. Thank you guys so much for listening. And if you have a listener question you want to ask, you can write to me at creaturefeaturepod at gmail.com. Um, and you know, if you enjoy the show, if you want more of these listener questions episodes, you can leave me feedback, you can leave a rating, a review, uh, and hey, happy holidays, everyone. I'll be back next week with a brand new spanking episode of Creature Feature, and thank you so much for listening. And thanks to the Space Cossacks for their super awesome song, Exolumina. Creature Feature is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts like the one you just heard, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or hey, guess what? Or if you listen to your favorite shows. See you next Wednesday. With the new Dexcom G7, you can achieve better diabetes results without painful finger sticks. It sends your glucose numbers to your compatible phone or watch, so you can always see where you are and where you're heading. See how food and exercise affects your glucose, making it easier to spend more time in range and lower your A1C. Take control of your diabetes with the number one recommended CGM brand. It's easy to get started today at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. This summer, click into cordless power with Memorial Day savings at the Home Depot. Tackle more than half an acre of grass with the convenience and gas-like power of the Ryobi 40-volt battery-powered mower. And keep your flower beds looking fresh with the 40-volt cordless string trimmer. Then clear leaves and debris with the 40-volt leaf blower. No cords, no gas, no hassle. Click into Memorial Day savings happening now at the Home Depot and on homedepot.com. How doers get more done.